recorded live. Welcome to IAQ Radio, the voice of the indoor air quality industry. Good day, wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio. My name is Joe Hughes, Radio Joe. Here with me in the studio is my co-host, Cliff Slotnick. Hey, afternoon, Joe. Good afternoon, Cliff. And the cyber jockey, CJ Zach Slotnick. Good afternoon, Joe. We also uh, have our first guest in the studio with us today, Jim Pemberton from Pemberton's. Hi, Joe. Welcome. Thanks for joining us here. First, before we get started, let's... uh, First of all, let people know how to contact us. You can contact me at joe.hughes, H-U-G-H-E-S, at iaqtraining.com. Today's segments will include the microband trivia quiz. Uh, Jim Pemberton from Pemberton's will be on with us, and David Starks from Zymec Technologies. We first have to thank our sponsors, Microband Systems, the microbial management company at microbandsystems.com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information available at ieconnections.com. Dry Ease Products, providing equipment for drying water-damaged homes and buildings. Dry Ease is first in drying solutions at dryease.com. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop at johndon.com and our newest... uh, Sponsor the Restoration Forum at therestorationforum.com. To contact the show, you can go to the TalkShoe website, T-A-L-K-S-H-O-E.com. And our show ID is 1547. Just follow the directions to get your PIN number, and you can get into the show, text message us, or call in. Last but not least, we'd like to... uh, Tell you to please visit IAQ Training Institute's websites for the most current dates for the training you trust at iaqtraining.com. And I did mess up one name. It's David Sparks, not Starks. I'm sorry about that, David, at Zymec Technologies. Okay, let's turn it over to Cliff for today's microband trivia question. Zach, how about the envelope, please? Perfect. The microband trivia question for Friday, March 23, 2007 is, which movie and TV actress holds a patent on bodywear made from a synthetic fiber? I'll repeat it. Which movie and TV actress holds a patent on bodywear made from a synthetic fiber? Back to you, Joe. Okay, thank you, Cliff. Our first guest today is Jim Pemberton. He's a trainer, consultant, and supplier to the cleaning and restoration contractors throughout the United States and Canada. He is an industry activist and spokesperson who uses opportunities as a public speaker and the Internet to promote professionalism in the cleaning and restoration industry and to protect the interests of individuals who are a part of it. You can visit the Pemberton website at www.pembertons.com, P-E-M-B-E-R-T-O-N-S.com. She walks all over you, so you know her, yeah, you know she can, you're a cause of pain. 
afternoon, Jim. Hi, Cliff. First question for you, is cleaning really a profession? Absolutely it is. A few decades ago, uh, carpet cleaners were seen sort of like janitors that come in the home, but over the last few years, the technology ne needed to do a great carpet cleaning job, do it properly in the home, and be recognized by the carpet manufacturers as being able to do it has caused these individuals to get training. Uh, they travel throughout the nation, and their investment in equipment often is fifty dollars to $100,000. Uh, they're now very often seen in the same category as electricians, plumbers, other service professionals. What, uh, when you deal with carpet cleaning, let's start with the carpet cleaning. I know mm -hmm. you work with a lot of other issues as well, Jim, but I'm not that familiar with carpet cleaning. Uh, what types of soils do you find in most homes? What are we trying to clean out of these carpets? There was an industry study done some decades ago, it's still considered relatively valid, that about 75 to 80 percent of the soil on a carpet is what we call particulate. It could be animal danders, hair, dust, uh, sand, plant material, anything walked in off the street. The rest of it's made up of liquids, spills uh, from beverages, uh, discharges from animals, uh, just different uh, cosmetics that might be used in the home, uh, paints, th so forth, things like that. And, and finally, aerosols. When people are chasing the bug around with the raid or you know, putting some hairspray on, that stuff all settles on the carpet and, and creates uh, another soil. You know, the, the soil that we find inside of homes and buildings, does it deposit or settle in predictable ways? Good word. Uh, predictably, yes, because as people walk into a building, a, a dwelling, a facility, they're going to bring it in on their shoes. And it's going to go according to the available space. So as a, one area gets dirtier, the dirt will just sort of transfer into what we call a traffic area. Other than that, it's, it's a matter of what we just call accidents. You know, people spill something, a, a pet has an accident, uh, or there's even disasters, fire and water-related disasters that will soil the carpet. But in normal cases, it's through airflow or tracked soil. What, I'm curious, I have two questions, I guess. What mistakes do most homeowners make which could adversely affect the indoor air quality? And um, second, I guess I'd, I'd follow that up with what do the cleaners do that might affect that indoor air quality? Well, starting with the consumer, the vacuum cleaner is an important tool to carpet care. Too many of them will buy an improper vacuum cleaner that may say it has HEPA filtration, but the filtration is only a HEPA filter bag not really designed to work as a unit with a vacuum cleaner. So they need to have a good vacuum cleaner that is made to work in a system to properly filter the air. That would be one thing. The second thing is what they're doing in their home to take spots out, uh, what they spray in their home. Anything that leaves residues in the carpet is going to affect not only the carpet's performance, but ultimately what's in the air. Uh, your follow-up question on the, the cleaning professional, a good carpet cleaner is aware of this. They'll start with vacuuming. In fact, that, that's one of the keys you should be looking at when you're hiring a cleaner, that they should vacuum the carpet first, which uh, too many don't do. Then their follow-up cleaning should not just be to how to make the carpet look good, but make sure they don't use things that leave the, uh, the home with uh, bad smells, with chemical residues, things that could be uncomfortable for the customer, their children, their pets. And finally, for the carpet to dry quickly enough. And I, I can touch on that more later if you like, but really the fast drying of the carpet is very critical. Uh, Follow-up question, Jim. Yeah. Don't some carpet cleaners practice a, uh, a method where they actually rinse everything out before they leave? That's a growing um, and more important way to clean carpet, and, and many cleaners uh, aren't as up on that as they should be, but cleaners that are trained that are on the cutting edge of technology more and more are learning the value of rinsing a carpet, leaving as little on the carpet as possible so that soil any pollutants, the cleaning agent, and water are removed as much as possible. That leaves a clean, dry carpet.
There's also some movement now towards uh, trying to minimize the amount of moisture use as well, aren't they using some sorts of specialized drying equipment along with the process as well? Yes, there are two ways to do this. Uh, for years, one of the, the kicks against carpet cleaning is it was wet too long. And uh, there are some methods of cleaning carpet to, uh, to use minimal moisture during the cleaning process, but they don't always clean it deeply enough. So what leading cleaners do today is buy equipment with sufficient strength and horsepower to extract the carpet thoroughly and then use drying tools to dry it so that it can be walked on rapidly after the cleaner leaves. You know, it's been said that anyone who's a professional cleaner really manages indoor air quality within an environment. Would you agree or disagree with that? I would agree that they should. And a good carpet cleaner certainly will do that because, again, from the beginning of the job to seeing how it should be cleaned to using methods that extract soil and don't redistribute it within the environment, they are part of that management. And a good cleaner will educate the customer, tell the consumer or the uh, building property owner things they can do to continue to help their carpet look good longer and keep the air clean as well. What uh, are some of the primary differences between the equipment that you know, your carpet cleaner would use and what maybe a household uh, a homeowner might use or might even rent from uh, the local, I don't know anymore, which stores rent these pieces of equipment, I guess, Lowe's or Home Depot or... Well, well, sure, it's a great question because for years people just bought vacuum cleaners. Now we see many people are buying machines to clean their own carpet. Something made for the homeowner to clean their carpet with is generally lightweight, easy to carry, easy to use, and, and inexpensive. I can't say that they're bad to own. They might be good for spotting or touch-up. But there was an industry study done that showed that the units the average customer can buy that are available in the larger department stores remove about 5% of the soil and residual moisture. Now you mentioned rental. There are equipment that you can rent and rental equipment does a little better. Generally if it's kept in good repair maybe about 15% removal of soil. But a cleaning professional isn't constrained by something being lightweight or inexpensive. They make major investments in their equipment. If they've got the best equipment available and it's generally truck mounted equipment, this type of equipment according to studies can remove as much as 90% of the soil. So the homeowner equipment, good to keep it touched up, but you need a professional to really get a carpet deep cleaned. As someone who has an interest in, in chemicals, what are the differences between chemicals which are available to a homeowner and chemicals which are available to professional cleaners? It's interesting. If you look at what's available to the homeowner, they always say things like clean like a professional or professional <laughs> strength. Uh, the products aren't necessarily bad. Uh, mostly they just need to be used properly, but those available to the consumer will not be as concentrated and probably not as strong because they're in the hands of someone who's not trained to use them. That's not to say what the professional carpet cleaner uses is toxic or dangerous. It is simply products that are made to work with the type of equipment that they're using that will work well and the carpet cleaner won't have to use a lot of it. The key is not leaving a lot of cleaning agent on the carpet to attract soil. And the products that professional uses remove the soil, then can be rinsed away so the carpet stays clean. That's probably the key difference, as a professional cleaning job stays clean longer. Do you find damage to carpet caused by people buying products, you know, whether it's off QVC or whether it's at the supermarket or the hardware store and uh, you know they, they see an advertisement on TV and it looks like it works like a miracle and I just wonder what happens in the real world. It, it can happen. It's, you know certainly any plumber would tell you you should never put drain cleaner in a drain but we all do that before right. we'll call the plumber right. and a carpet cleaner would want you to resist spotting your own carpet but we tend to do that. 
The damage usually occurs when the products are used improperly. In fairness to the people who make the products available to the consumer, these aren't bad things, but often the customer dumps it on the carpet, leaves too much, doesn't have a way to blot or rinse it away, and the product being left on the carpet for extended periods of time or being left there too long or in too high a concentration, rather, can cause color damage. As someone who uh, I really am, you know, emphasize training, how are professional carpet cleaners trained today? Most of them have learned training, uh, like the old-fashioned apprentice programs. They worked for somebody else that got handed down to them by a previous business owner. Today, there are there is training available through classroom-type training. Uh, there's programs available through people who distribute the cleaning products. Independent individuals offer this training. Certification is available. Through the Internet today, there are great resources of information available. There is Internet uh, bulletin boards, magazines. A cleaner that wants to learn and is dedicated to learning about this industry has several resources to be on the cutting edge. I'd like to follow up real quick. Mm -hmm. Just The Internet scares me sometimes. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you get good and bad information. How could... How could we direct listeners to where the better information is? Is there some tip you could give us? I wouldn't say that there's one repository of it. I would say that uh, one of the things is that some of the bulletin boards are more of a sharing place, and, and it would be difficult sometimes to know how credible the information is in, in that type of application. Uh, there are sources of information through some of the industry suppliers. Uh, for example, what Unsmoke does would be an example where you can get information. Uh, there, one resource would be uh, the Institute of Inspection and Cleaning and Restoration Certification, the IICRC. At iscrc.org, you can see a list of available classes and trainers that put those classes on in various cleaning and restoration categories. Any other associations, like I, I would call Carpet and Rug Institute or something like that? Is that still around? That's a tough one. I mean, the, I don't the, want to put the, you on a spot no, now. No, uh, the, the, <laughs> the Carpet and Rug Institute is an association of carpet manufacturers. Ah. And uh, they do have some guidelines for cleaning that some of the mills uh, do recommend. I wouldn't say that they are the, the sole authority of cleaning. They are an authority of the manufacturer and distribution of carpet. Well, good. That's an important distinction yes. for our listeners. You know, speaking of carpet and the Carpet and Rug Institute, carpet as a floor covering in the indoor environment is controversial. You yes, know, it is. What's your opinion? That does carpet belong on the floor or not? Based on my experiences and uh, what, what I've read in our industry, it seems that carpet, if properly maintained, and that's a big if, does contribute to better indoor air quality. Uh, others who've done these studies have used this illustration. Carpet acts as a filter, and while that filter is kept clean, it will hold on to particulates, uh, bioaerosols, biocontaminants, and keep them from being rapidly distributed into the airspace. So with the understanding that the consumer or the building owner or the people in charge of a facility will properly vacuum carpet on a regular basis with filtration and clean that carpet to remove residues that aren't removed by vacuuming, it can become something that actually controls and holds on to those contaminants. Uh, hard floors, and you know, some of us have gone to ceramics and uh, uh, laminates and so forth. Often, you find there's more dust in those in those environments than there is with carpet. So, I would say that carpet would be a more positive thing to have, with the understanding that it has to be maintained. With with that 
maintenance issue. And how often do you recommend having carpet? I mean, obviously, let's start with, you know, how often do you sweep the carpet? How often do you have the carpet cleaner come in and actually do a good thorough cleaning on it? Is there a rule of thumb? There are some rules. I mean, first understanding, it depends how much activity goes on in the home okay. and, uh, and what environment you're in. Are you near construction and, and so forth? But there, there's a couple of things. Generally, cleaning carpet every year is a very good baseline. Uh, the Carpet Rug Institute, as an example, their member comp- companies such as Shaw Industries really recommend hot water extraction on a yearly to 18-month basis. In fact, recommend is the wrong word. They now require it just to maintain the texture retention warranties that they put on their carpet. They recognize that the, the thorough cleaning and flushing of these yarns keeps the carpet looking good longer. So certainly if, if they have an interest in keeping their product looking good to their customer, that's their reasons they use this frequency. Many people are now getting their carpet clean more than one year. If you have a lot of activity in your home, pets, young children, uh, it really would pay perhaps to have every six months, and that is a stronger trend to go to six-month cleaning cycles. And that's with the hot water extraction. Uh, what other types of cleaning? Can, uh, is there dry cleaning, wet cleaning? Can you give us some information on that? The reason I mention hot water extraction is it's often uh, preferred or recommended by the carpet mills, but not all of them. There are other methods of cleaning, and sometimes terms like dry and wet and steam cleaning are difficult to understand. A better way to look at them are low moisture methods and then perhaps hot water extraction. Low moisture methods would include things that use a powdered carrier, such as a cellulose material or a polymer, that's impregnated with a detergent. This material is distributed through the carpet, worked in with brushes, and vacuumed away. It's a very dry system of cleaning. But it actually does include some moisture as well because there's preconditioning agents and pre-sprays that are needed to loosen soil. That's why we don't really call them dry, but very low moisture. That method is excellent in areas of high traffic, areas where uh, any slip-slide hazards might exist, but primarily is used more in commercial facilities and is not known to do the deep restorative cleaning sometimes needed by hot water extraction. There's other low moisture methods that are very acceptable that uh, use a detergent that's worked into the carpet, allowed to dry. It surrounds the soil and is vacuumed out later. So all these methods are valid. Hot water extraction happens to be the one currently preferred by most manufacturers of carpet. Uh, You mentioned steam. Can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Yeah, the the term steam cleaning uh, is a misnomer. It comes from the original inventor of extraction equipment in the 60s who actually used a steam-generated equipment to produce the pressure for the liquid. Actual live steam applied to the carpet would be damaging. Most hot water extraction is done from anywhere from uh, room temperature, lukewarm temperature, to probably about 180 degrees at the carpet's contact point. Not at the equipment, but what actually touches the carpet. These temperatures are very good for cleaning the carpet, but still safe. But they're not truly steam. Is that... That type of temperature seems like it might also help disinfect when you get up to that type of level of temperature. Is that true? I don't think that I would feel comfortable making that claim because the heat would have to be on the carpet for an extended period of time. People more educated than me could answer that question in depth in microbiology, but suffice to say this, that during the cleaning process, the hot water hits the carpet and is rapidly vacuumed away within seconds. So that uh, heat spike is a very, very brief period of time, just enough to loosen grease and oil and break down hardened material on the carpet, but uh, not that it would have any type of uh, deep sanitizing effect. That takes uh, other products like uh, your sponsor, Microban, 
would probably have something that worked very well for that. <laughs> We've been the <laughs> well, I set him up, he hit the home run. Pitch <laughs> <laughs> it underhand. There you go, Joe. Perfect. Hits it out of the park. Uh, if I had my uh, carpet at home professionally clean with hot water extraction, how soon would I expect it to dry? A, a reasonable expectation of any carpet cleaner professional is, is generally considered in about a six to eight hour range. But really today, many, many cleaners are going the extra mile. They're buying more expensive equipment or using additional drying equipment to have the carpet dry in a few hours and sometimes less than an hour. A lot of that, though, will also depend on how soiled you allowed your carpet to get. You know, are you giving this gentleman a, a difficult job to, to do with the amount of soil level? Are they able to maintain it? And even outside conditions, air conditioning the home versus a rainy day in an air-conditioned dwelling. But within reason, within a few hours, is fairly easy to, to attain today. It's a common option as part of professional carpet cleaning to, you know, have this option of deciding whether or not you want fabric protection or you don't. Is there really anything to it? Or, you know, we have a lot of consumers that listen. Is, is this a good investment or is this not a good investment? Carpet protector works. Okay. Uh, to give it a, a more specific thing, there, there are two things that the consumer has to be aware of. One is be sure you've got a reputable carpet cleaner. And I do want to comment on that before we're finished today. Sure. But a re reputable carpet cleaner will buy a product that works. will clean the carpet in such a way that the product will adhere. If they leave a lot of detergent residues on the carpet, it won't work. They'll apply it at the right rate. And then the second thing is they'll advise their customer of how to use it. Having the carpet protector doesn't mean that you don't vacuum the carpet or blot up spills. What a protector does is buys time. It buys you time to remove the spot before it becomes a stain. It allows the vacuum cleaner to do a better job. But without participation of a qualified cleaner and a conscientious consumer, it wouldn't be worth the extra money. You know, one follow-up question. Even though some of these characteristics are supposedly built into the fiber, that the fibers right. now are resistant to certain types of, uh, let's say, staining and, and soiling and so on and so forth. I just want to just confirm that you did say that even though some of this is built in, that that fabric protection is still a good idea. Yes, it is because the protection wears off. I see. The protection does not clean off with standard detergents, things that a professional would use. But if you look carefully at a carpet warranty, it will exclude the stain resistance, or there'll be no warranty for stain resistance in heavy traffic areas such as stairs. That's an acknowledgement that heavy wear eventually would take it off of the entire carpet. So a cleaning professional within a year or two of you buying your carpet, if they recommend protector in the open areas, they're giving you a very good recommendation. Jim, let's, this is uh, interesting, and I, I enjoy talking about the carpet cleaning. I've got a bunch at home that needs cleaning now. <laughs> But uh, anyhow, I, I have also, we've had questions in the past about cleaning mattresses, and I'm just curious, do you have any uh, information about whether or not mattresses should be cleaned and how? I think cleaners should pay more attention to the service. For years in uh, restoration training, we advised restorers to clean mattresses after fire losses, but to have them cleaned in the home when carpet and upholstery is clean makes a great deal of sense. Uh, obviously, we spend a great deal of our life on that mattress, and uh, skin danders and other things work their way into the mattress. Now, if a person has an allergy, they need to follow the guidelines of what their, the doctor that's treating them is telling them. The cleaning isn't everything. There are some treatments made that's, that are helpful, 
but ultimately it is not for a cleaner to be the doctor or the allergy specialist for these individuals. Another note, if you have your mattress cleaned, you're having it cleaned uh, to make you more comfortable, to know that it's more sanitary, but any stains uh, that result from human use of the mattress over the years will not be removed with most cleaning because mattresses aren't designed to be stain resistant. And what should I look for in having my mattress cleaned? How should they clean it? I, I don't know. I'm okay, a, a carpet cleaner would clean the mattress the way they would clean your sofa or chair. They would use hot water extraction with tools that are designed for cleaning upholstery. They would use detergents that would be safe for both them and the people that live there, and then the residues would be rinsed away. So it would, be, it would just be very similar to how the carpet and the upholstery would be cleaned. I think that's a very important point because I think there are a number of different methods that are offered in terms of mattress cleaning, and I think that some of them would be, I guess, what I would consider a totally dry method where they're not really doing much but vacuuming the carpet. Uh, I, other companies actually have lights that they're, you know, ultraviolet lights and so on and so forth that you're uh, shining on the carpet. So I just wanted to make the distinction. In your home, if you made the choice, which way would you rather have it done? Would you rather have it done the way they were cleaning a sofa, or would you rather have it done with these vacuum uh, light-type methods? I clean my carpet with the same equipment that I clean my uh, upholstery with. And I, I, I do thorough vacuuming. I'm, vacuuming is the main thing to do to mattresses because most of what comes off our body are particulates. But then I also do hot water extraction and and make sure that the carpet is in, in my, excuse me, the mattress is as clean as possible in my mind. And I think, you know, would you agree or disagree that the wet cleaning would be more likely to, you know, remove other potential allergens as opposed to just concentrating on dust mites, which is... Yes, because dust mites is just a narrow thing. Some people are allergic to dust mites, some are not. Dust mites don't bother me, but I still clean my mattress once a year because dirt bothers me. Okay. Yeah. And this sounds like something that a consumer could do the vacuuming part, but they certainly wouldn't want to try to handle the extraction part on their own. That sounds a little uh, scary to me, but maybe I'm wrong. Well, it, it's it's just like anything else. If you're not trained to do it, they possibly could get their mattress too wet, and, uh, and that would be a bad thing to do. Okay. Certainly, a, a trained professional knows what to look for. They'll clean it and you know, check the edges and crevices and so forth and, and make sure that they do a very thorough job. Nice thing to do, especially if you have a king-size bed, is have the service professional flip the mattress for you, which you should be doing, but have them do it for you. That was my other question. <laughs> do you clean it in place? Do you flip it and clean both sides? Do you take it outside and beat it with a bat? How do you handle this? <laughs> Uh, pretty much it's cleaned in place, but uh, it can be turned around and, and allowed to dry off of the box springs and then replaced. Gotcha. Okay. I want to go back to vacuum cleaners. You had mentioned vacuum cleaners before. Yep. And, you know, the consumer goes to, you know, a big box store and there's a whole wall full of vacuum cleaners. And um, how do they decide wh what to get? And is it really important what they get? Can they just buy anyone or should they be looking for certain characteristics? It's not my place to certainly recommend a brand of vacuum cleaner. Uh, it's like anything else, you do pay what you get. Yeah, but if you recommend that a brand, we could get a sponsor. <laughs> <laughs> Probably more importantly, uh, the Carpet and Rugs Institute did institute a green seal program. And if you'd like to consult their website at carpet-rug.org, www.carpet-rug.org, they do have a section you can go to on their green cell testing and how you can determine what vacuum would be appropriate. Understand the motivation of people who make carpet. I always like to know the motivation, then I understand the value. 
It is in the carpet industry's interest to make sure that the carpet you own is serviced well and that you like it better than hard floors. So the reason that they recommend cleaning procedures and types of vacuum cleaners is so their product looks good longer. That's their selfish interest, but it serves your interest as well. Yeah, that's a good point. Good point. What cleaning challenges are created by house pets? House pets uh, are the carpet cleaner's best friend. A, a joke within the carpet cleaning industry is they should give a puppy every year to a customer. Uh, even a well-trained house pet is going to have accidents. So urine and fecal discharges can stain a carpet, and urine can penetrate below the carpet nap and into places that the customer, the owner of the carpet, can't readily remove. Add to that animal hair, danders, the fact that dogs aren't generally trained to wipe their feet if they walk in from the outside, and uh, the oily coats of certain breeds of dogs, all of these contribute to contaminants to the carpet. The people who own the, the pet certainly can maintain their carpet as best as they can, but if you love your pets, you should love your carpet cleaner. And before we, we will uh, move on, but I know that before we move on to uh, contact information, etc., I want you to please tell our listeners, how do you go about choosing a professional cleaner? You know, it's... Probably the best way is like choosing anyone that would come and work for you in your home, and that is get references and start with ones that you would know. Talk to family members. Talk to uh, business associates, anyone you know that may have hired a professional cleaner and get a reference. Now, if you don't know anyone that's had a carpet cleaner, talk to where you bought your carpet. Many uh, well-intentioned, experienced carpet cleaners will work with carpet stores for referral programs. Now these carpet stores may have a, a commission working with them, but for the most part they want the guy that's cleaning the carpet they sell to do a good job so it doesn't embarrass them. In the end, if you don't have those sources, you could also ask the carpet cleaner for references. Any good carpet cleaner should be able to give you names of people they've cleaned for. Secondly, don't trust the price ads. It's not, not to say that you can't get good bargains out there, but if you get a coupon in the mail or you are solicited at a very low price per room, especially uh, single digits, you know, $6.95, $9.95 a room, read the fine print. Very often the cautions that you have to look for are comments like free demonstration of deep scrub method. That will mean that an individual will come in and do a light surface cleaning and then in the dirtiest area of your carpet demonstrate, so to speak, a heavier cleaning method that will get that area cleaner. Then it'll cost often four or five times as much to have carpet cleaned in that fashion. So watch for that. Watch for high-priced add-ons. As a rule, a good carpet cleaner can quote you a price for cleaning the carpet whatever its soil condition that they'll be consistent with. Finally, you can look for trained and certified cleaners at that website I mentioned, uh, iicrc.org. There's a place that you can find individuals that are trained and certified in carpet cleaning. But I like starting with references first. Start with someone you know. We um, talk about the same issue with duct cleaning and the, and the same kinds of um, advertising occur in mm -hmm. that industry. I'm just curious, what's a ballpark idea? What should I expect to pay for a good professional carpet cleaner? I know it's not an easy question. But no, no, it isn't, because depending on the area of the country, costs can be different. But certainly uh, $30, $40 a room in room pricing, okay. $0.30 cents a square foot, $0.40 cents a square foot uh, in, in 
square footage type pricing right. are industry averages. That doesn't mean someone that charges less is bad. It doesn't mean that someone's charging more is, is uh, taking advantage of them. Those are just averages. But certainly, uh, low dollar prices per room with a lot of fine print add-ons should draw your suspicion. No, that's a great help. Then I know if it's $10 a room, I've got a little, uh, I better check up real, a little more closely. Put your reading glasses on, ask lots of questions before they come to your home. Okay, great. Is there anything else you'd like to add, Jim, that, subject matter that you'd like to touch on? I think if I just added anything else is for the public to understand the, the great value that a professional carpet cleaner can bring to extending the life of your carpet. Uh, these individuals, I, I know most of them personally with my work as a consultant and a trainer, are generally people that take a great pride in doing the type of work that they do. And uh, you can definitely get longer life of your carpet, which doesn't just save you money in replacing carpet, but really the disruption of having carpet installed and, and your home moved around. And carpet really is easier to maintain and more affordable for you than many hard surfaces. You might think that buying tile or wood uh, is an easier care surface, but in a long term, those things can uh, be more expensive to keep looking good longer. Carpet is a great investment for you, and, and so is cleaning of it. Jim, before we move on to our next guest, let me bring uh, Dr. Wild Dietrich. Are you still on the line there? Hello. Hello. Yep, I'm here. I listen carefully. Hello, Dieter. Always yeah, a quiz. We, we always like to get your uh, input at the end of each guest here. Any, any well, questions or comments? Uh, yeah, uh, it brought back a couple of... Uh, uh, experiences I had because I grew up during and after the Second World War when we didn't have vacuum cleaner. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, we, and I remember it was a dirty job, but uh, it was a chore, but we had to go outside and uh, bang the carpet um, uh, when, when it was hanging up. And we had to do that about once a month uh, or thereabouts. And... Um, we did the same thing, interestingly, with mattresses. Now, mattresses in Europe are differently constructed than in the United States. They come in three pieces. And again, we took those out and banged it. I don't even know the name in English. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, with a, a, a special tool manually until, the, you know, until you banged it so long that no dust was coming out. So uh, that is interesting. Um, other than that, uh, I, I would have had also the question: Yeah, what what does a good job cost? Not a cheap one. I like I said, you know, ten bucks a room. I know somebody is cheating. You know that that doesn't work. So we got that one, thirty to forty cents. That certainly was a question. And I have to confess that I may have to look around for a carpet cleaner and get my <laughs> carpet cleaned. That makes two of us. Yes, sir. It's, uh, that because it has been longer than a year. <laughs> I've been to your place, dear. I think it has been a little longer than a year. And, and you've been to mine, so you know I've got the same problem. We'll have, yeah. to, uh, we'll have to do a little research here. I'm, well, we've got the man, the man to talk to right here in the uh, That's studio. Right. So. And Jim is a local out of the pittsburgh area and i'd like to really thank him for coming on and jim also is very knowledgeable about more than just carpet and we'd certainly love to have you come back and talk about other issues in the future but before you go could you give us contact information for people that might be interested in calling or uh emailing or yes all, all of the above as you mentioned our website www.com 
Pembertons.com, P-E-M-B-E-R-T-O-N-S.com. We have an informative educational website, E-Clean Advisor, the letter E, C-L-E-A-N, Advisor, A-D-V-I-S-O-R-Advisor.com. And I can be reached at jimpem2, J-I-M-P-E-M-2, at comcast.net. Thanks, Jim. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. She walks all over you, she walks all over We have, uh, it looks like we have IE Connections on the line here for a little What's News segment. Zach, do you have any, uh... You got a kitten up a tree, well, come to me, and I'll see it makes it on the front page. The mayor's mother broke a toe, they gotta know, stop the press, it's the mass, it's a scandal of the age, hell, it's big news, another shock to rock. Hello, hello, Steve Sauer. Are you out there? Yes, Joe. I'm here. How you doing? <laughs> I'm great. How about yourself? You are you recovering? I know you weren't feeling well. You feeling a little better now, Steve? A little bit better. I, hopefully, I should be good by Monday. Great, great. Well, what's new, Steve? Uh, we've got a new edition coming out pretty soon of uh, Indoor Environment Connections. What's the headline this month? Well, uh, the uh, front page actually is a big investigative. Uh, well, I don't know. I'm not going to say that. There, there were a bunch of in, uh, investigative stories in mainstream news outlets, uh, you know, about the treatment of American military veterans in medical facilities, you know, spurred on by a series that appeared at the end of last month in the Washington Post about the Walter Reed Army Medical Center right here in D.C. <clears throat> the center has about 900 patients in all. Many are back from Iraq and Afghanistan, wounded, you know, many with emotional scars and you know, it's a place where they live and heal and recuperate, and it's also run by the military. When the Washington Post uh, went in and talked to these patients, they saw some of the conditions of, like, building interiors there. The series mentioned mold, cockroaches, and other indoor contaminants. And so the pressure was on them uh, to fix it, and uh, the heat was on as far as, well, how did it get this way? So... Uh, that's what IE Connections front page is focusing on this month. I was one of many reporters who actually got into uh, Walter Reed to take a tour of the facilities um, you know, over the past month. And uh, I was just there earlier this week. I don't think that that has any connection to do with why I'm sick right now. <laughs> <laughs> I hope not, Steve. Well, what was it like? I mean, give us the scoop. Come on. Mold everywhere, oh, rats, just... cockroaches. What's the deal? No, everything's like pretty much, uh, you know, the mold has now been painted over. <laughs> oh, okay. No, it's, they, they actually, uh, they went in and did some mold removal and stuff, but no, there's fresh paint on everything. Um, you know, there weren't like rats and cockroaches crawling all over the place, you know, so it seems like they've taken care of some stuff. But I went in and took, uh, you know, pictures of the building uh, that the Post mentioned uh, most both inside and out, and on top of a leaky roof that was the cause of much of the mold inside. Cliff's got a question now. for you here, Steve. Steve, i got a question. You got into the building, and what's really your impression? Was this something that was very, very valid as portrayed in the press, 
Or is this just something that the press got a hold of and blew out of proportion the way they blow some other things out of proportion? Or somewhere in the middle? Um, well, I mean, as, as far as the conditions that existed at the time the Post uh, you know, did their initial report, that had to have been pretty accurate. I don't, I don't think that anything was really blown out of proportion. It was probably limited to a few rooms, as far as I could tell. Most of the rooms were in pretty good shape uh, when I was there earlier this week. Um, there were, you know, a few where the leaks are still there. Um, you know, there, I think it was room 416. That's their top floor. You can actually still see where water's still dripping down from the ceiling onto a table. And that, uh, that room actually had, like, a lampshade in it that is still, like, stained with water and stuff like that. So, you know, it's not all entirely... Uh, you know, fixed up, but they have contracts that they're, uh, you know, to do all that. And that's sort of where my interview, which I published a lot of, uh, that explores the topic of, you know, their contracts. They uh, just got a, a private company called IAP Worldwide Services to come in and handle regular maintenance. And as far as, like, uh, the leaky roof that's causing the, the leak in 416, they did a little bit of patchwork and stuff, but now they have a contract to get it fixed entirely, the, the entire roof replaced. Uh, by the end of April. Good, good, Steve. What else? Give me one more quick uh, interesting tidbit that will get people interested in uh, reading the paper this month. <laughs> uh, another big story is an ongoing discussion over ethics in the indoor air quality industry. Ethics? Um, you mean there's ethics in the indoor air quality industry? There's a debate over whether there should be. <laughs> <laughs> What people are talking about is, you know, the appropriate use of industry association logos, you know, the use of scare tactics in marketing and advertising, and then the biggie. It's kind of, it relates to, like, the auto mechanic who, uh, you know, if, you, if you're a bewildered customer and you go in there and they tell you you need to replace your throttle pump, you know, and that'll be a thousand bucks, please. Uh, if you're getting the right deal, and it's kind of the same way with, uh, mold people, you know, like uh, someone could interpret testing results in a way that says that you have more mold than you actually do, so it drives up the cost of removal. And if that same person is doing the removal or has financial ties to the person who is, that's, you know, more bucks for them. And uh, so therein lies the conflict of interest. But, you know, now the, the uh, industry is saying, well, is it a conflict? Is it always? Is it sometimes? Is it not at all? And, you know, people have all these different opinions about it. But uh, what we did is we just compiled what all of the, organ the uh, industry organizations say about it. Well, that sounds like it'll be interesting reading. And I don't mean to make light of the subject because it is a serious issue. There's a lot of, uh, a lot of uh, mm, less than ethical advertising that is brought to our attention. And uh, I know as a board member with IAQA, we do get some ethics complaints we take them seriously so i appreciate you following up on that and i'm sure the industry does too well thanks for joining us again here this week steve and uh we'll look forward to having you back when you're feeling a little better in a couple of weeks down the road you're i don't i don't want to be negative or anything but you seem to be a better interview than your boss glenn there i don't know <laughs> <laughs> yeah appreciate that. And actually, I just had my carpet cleaned at uh, my apartment yesterday, would you believe? All right. Glad to hear it. <laughs> Thanks again, Steve. We'll talk to you in a couple All weeks. Right. All right. Take care. You got a kitten up a tree. Welcome to me. And I'll
see it makes it on the front page. The mayor's mother broke a toe. They gotta know. Stop the press. It's the mass. It's a scandal of the age. Hell, it's big news. Another shock to rock. Our next guest is David Sparks. David Sparks is Executive Vice President of Research and Development of Zymec Technologies. David also invented Zymec's microparticle sterilizing technology. David began his career as an entrepreneur by formulating a specialized cleaner for use in conjunction with pressure washers to remove years of oxidized dirt and paint from railroad cars without the need for brushing. In the late 1990s, David worked overseas as a consultant the British Petroleum Company in the breakdown of crude oil and assisted them in environmental cleanups in Trinidad and Tobago. David returned to the United States in 2000 and opened the hydro engineering and chemical manufacturing business in Florida. In early 2004, David invented Zymex microparticle sterilizing technology, which is the most effective indoor air sterilizing and surface technology in the world. Last week, I was down at the RIA convention in Orlando, and I finagled a tour of their facility, and I got really excited about the machine. And we're going to talk to the particle man in a minute. Particle man, particle man, doing the things a particle can. What's he like? It's not important. Particle man, is he a dot or is he a speck? When he's underwater, does he get wet or does the water get him instead? Nobody knows. Particle man. All right. Thank you, Zach. Welcome, David Sparks. Are you on the line? Yes, Joe. How are you? Great, thank you. How about yourself? I'm doing well. well doing th well. Thanks for joining us. I have been on the road, and I came back, and I saw an email from Cliff that we were going to have you on the show, and I had a chance to look at uh, your website real quickly. Can you tell us a little bit more about exactly what this microparticle sterilizing technology is and how it works? I sure can. It's a very exciting uh new patented technology that we've come out with, we are able to break down uh, different types of uh, solutions, not necessarily a disinfectant, it can be other items as well. But we've discovered a way to break it down to the submicron size. Um, as you're aware, you can um, spray large particles around, you have surface tensions involved, therefore the particles don't necessarily um, get a chance to come in contact with what you're trying to clean. So what we've done is basically developed a wonderful uh, process that not only breaks it down to one micron and below in particle sizes, but also has a charge to it, which aids in actually letting the particle migrate to all three-dimensional surfaces within a room. Uh, so we've had some very, very unmatched success with this product, and um, I'm very pleased to be on your show. You know, one of the things that I saw when I was down there is they had a phenomenal uh, demonstration. Uh, they did, actually did a room for me, and I got to see them fill the room up with the treatment material and then evacuate it. And I think Dave's going to talk a little bit more about that. But they also had this obstacle course created. And this was the most incredible thing that, that I've ever seen. And because our guests are listening, Dave, can you tell us a little bit about the size of the obstacle course, what's in it, the obstacles, and how you're able to get these charged particles through this obstacle course. 
be happy to. It's a it's a pyramid, approximately eight feet. I believe about eight feet tall by eight feet wide. It contains ten boxes, and those boxes are designed to serve as individual barriers between the two boxes. You know, box to box to box, and the next level of boxes. Uh, we have um, throughways that are designed to accept different types of mediums, such as filter medium, screen, venting, carpet, padding, children's toys, uh, anything that could possibly obstruct a particle or run into a particle uh, in, in different locations within this chamber. And we start the whole demonstration process uh, from the bottom working up. And we continue to add different types of mediums and, and you can see the particles going through the easy stuff of you know at first of course like a, a vent then it goes through a screen then it goes through a um, couple inches of uh, construction insulation then it goes through AC filters then it's going through more insulation and more insulation then children's toys in the next level uh, all the way up through the top until it comes off the top and starts cascading down the side uh, a lot of the particles that we have generated you're seeing only maybe maybe 30 percent of them. What you're not seeing and what is adhering to all those surfaces is, is the really the amazing part of our technology. So um, it's just it's really an amazing thing to watch and uh, I, I would love to have people visit our website and check it out. Let me see if I can visualize this a little better. So I'm, I'm, I'm visualizing a fog or a mist I guess we call it our dry mist treatment. It's uh, a little bit more descriptive than that. It's kind of hard to explain. Okay, that's the that's what I'm trying to get at. We're on the radio, so I'm, I'm looking. I'm, I'm thinking. Okay, we've got these very small one micrometer. I'll do that for Doctor Wow because he doesn't like micron. It's a sloppy way of saying micrometer, in his opinion. You know the Germans are very precise, but uh, and not and not anything against you. We all do it, Dave. But um, I'm. I can't see a one micrometer particle, obviously. We, we can see down to maybe 50 micrometers. Um, so what we're seeing is a bunch of these particles, I'm assuming. And then you're saying we only see about 30% because the rest are attaching to the, um, to the materials within the pyramid? Correct. They're attaching on a very small uh, scale, down to the scale of actual viruses themselves. Um, uh, one, to give you for instance, like you say, 50 micrometers, nanometers, whatever you want to call them, uh, you're, you're, you can see those. But when you start looking across uh, a room filled with particles, you get light diffusion, even if they are quarter micron below whatever, you start having light diffusion from the very huge mass number of all these particles that we generate. Uh, the, the point being of the demonstration chamber is to show how our particles effectively reach and go to places anywhere free air flows uh, throughout a three-dimensional area. So that, that's the point of our demonstration chamber. And I'm curious about the, um, the evacuation afterwards. Can you explain that a little bit more? Sure. It, is, it isn't necessary to evacuate our particles if you have time and, you know, to allow the treatment to stay within the environment. Of course, it would be the perfect world if we all had time for that. Uh, it was developed in order to aid in reoccupation of a hospital room, a hospital environment where patient turnaround is extremely fast and where, 
you know, people don't have time to go in there and take care of the proper cleaning procedures that they need to do. So that's the whole reason behind developing the vacuum uh, system that we use. It's in a very, very high efficient, uh, high volume evacuation system that scrubs the air multiple, multiple times uh, within a room. So not only is it removing our particles that haven't already been um, attracted to contaminants within the environment or viruses, bacteria, and have done their job, but they're also pulling out animal dander, dust, uh, you know, not animal dander in a hospital, but human mm -hmm. dander in a hospital, uh, viruses, contaminants, hair, loose items of dust, and all of that, and making the whole environment a lot cleaner as well. We, last week we had a, a guest on who, who spoke about MRSA, or MRSA, as she called it, methicillin-resistant staph aureus. And it sounds like this technology was developed to assist in being able to handle those types of bacteria and other um, possible nosocomial infections and to do it quickly i understand your your point in doing it quickly because it would seem like it would take a long time to hand wipe down and properly clean that room at the end of each uh patient's stay there's also places well, you... there's Go also ahead. places where this will get that you can't get by hand which i think is one of the uh, most important aspects of the treatment i mean i i saw them literally take this room it it and they had it set up so you could visually see it. It was an average size office such as this, 12 by 15. And literally within a couple of minutes, this room filled up with this vapor. And uh, it was all programmed. And I'm going to get David to ask him some questions about the programmability of the machine. But it was programmed. It knew when to go on. It knew when to go off. And also it had this vacuum system, which was separate. It was like a slave to it. So the vacuum system went on. It knew how long it was going to take to remove all the particles. And we literally went into that room uh, several minutes later. I'd say this whole thing probably took less than five minutes to do this whole demonstration. And you didn't notice any significant odor from the product, anything like that. And what was most amazing is that there didn't seem to be any droplets. There were no droplets on the windows. There were no droplets on the floor. There were no droplets on horizontal surfaces. And to me, I, I found that just, just most amazing. Well, as you probably know, um, and according to the CDC, that you know MRSA is infecting over 200 and, or 2 million, 500,000 people a year. 100,000 people are dying every year. That's unnecessary. Uh, it is very difficult, if not impossible, for anybody to clean all three-dimensional surfaces within a hospital room. We've all been there. We've seen them. Um, you can have someone sneeze and create, you know, the viruses and the bacteria and such within the saliva is thrown who knows where, uh, and it has time to grow and multiply. Our system's designed to uh, reach those areas without leaving residue, without leaving any uh, uh, residue at all. But it does the job, kills the viruses, and makes it a much, much safer environment for the people that are, you know, occupying that room in a very quick amount of time, very, very quick. If I understand correctly, Dave, your target market or one of your target markets is to take this machine and sell it to the hospital so that the hospital will utilize it, uh, you know, have their personnel uh, utilize it between uh, patients. Let's talk a little bit about the automation that you have on this machine. What, what sort of records are kept and why is this important? 
Well, this this system to to kind of go back a, just a little bit. It really some of the dirtiest, uh, most contaminated areas we found, uh, as far as medical goes, are the ones located on four wheels. That's the ambulances, the fire trucks. <laughs> These people are picking people up. They're doing uh, fast turnarounds, taking people to hospitals. And some of the things we have found in these ambulances and such like that, where well, we've done tests and we've done treatments, and we've, we have those records on our uh, website, feel free to go check it out, uh, was very horrifying. Uh, now, those, uh, those, those, that's a place that people go and, and sit down in, and, and they're already injured. They're already hurt. They're being taken to the hospital, and they're being exposed to some very, very dangerous things, not to mention the people that are working to try to help the people that are hurt. So actually, uh, I feel the ambulance area, the uh, firemen, the ambulances should be a priority number one with us because that's the first line of defense of taking someone to the hospital that needs to be helped. Now, in regards to the programmability of our equipment, we've done the very best we can to make this as user-friendly and uh, automatic as possible. There's a lot of complex um, mathematics that has gone into calculating of uh, treatment times and what we need to let it sit in the air and how long to evacuate it if it's in an evacuatable situation. Uh, it's set up so that a person just simply puts in via a chart, uh, this room is this big by this big, okay, it says here on the screen, let's treat that room for, you push the button for X amount of minutes. It has some backup safety features to it, so just uh, unless you know a passcode, uh, just anybody can't activate the machine. Uh, they have to have the passcode. Put that in and hit the uh, start button. It gives them a 40-second uh, beep, audible beep, to let them know that the system's going to start in 40 seconds. They leave the room, shut the door, do the treatment. It beeps when it's done, and it's safe to return into the environment. So we've, we've really worked hard on making this simple for the user. Your your website has some pretty interesting testimonials. I didn't get a chance to look at all of the um, studies, but I did look at the first two, I believe it was. One was the ambulance. The second looked like it was like a modular classroom. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you set up the study in the modular classroom? The uh, modular classroom was set up uh, with both uh, contaminants. The contaminants that were in there, we, we looked for them to determine what kind of count we had, what kind of uh, colony forming units of bacteria were there prior to any treatment of ours. We also brought slides in in a, you know, a very protected way of different types of materials ourselves, and we wanted to know what the kill ratios would be. And we got done with the test, and there again, the test results are posted on the Internet, I do believe. Um, it was a 20-minute test. We, we did very, very well on it. I mean, we were reaching vertical, horizontal, and areas that were even, even um, inverted behind things, such as uh, picture, behind pictures, behind frames, behind pencil sharpeners, behind closet doors that were closed. Uh, and we were killing these viruses and bacteria 99.9% uh, and 100%, but, you know, you say 99.9%. .9. We had excellent, excellent results with those tests. Now, as far as the ambulance test goes, that was a very disturbing test because of what we found and where we found it. You know, MRSA in the driver's seat, and uh, unfortunately, that test was cut short because the ambulance had to be called in the service because of an emergency. But when we got the results back, they were still absolutely phenomenal. We only gave this vehicle a half of the treatment that we wanted to. 
and we still did 98 to 99% of uh, contamination kill and, you know, 99.9% on other items. So uh, it was phenomenal. And there, again, no residues, no damage to medical equipment, uh, no, um, it's just it's just an amazing situation because it's even sterilizing and disinfecting inside areas you can't get to, such as uh, vents, behind handles where you touch, uh, under, you know, the handrails. So um, we're very pleased with the results, very pleased with the results. I've got a couple of legal questions that I'd like to move in, and I know that I know that you're not an attorney, but uh, one of the things that's happened is that hospitals are now, according to our guest uh, last week, are now being required to disclose infection rates. And how does your equipment impact this mandated disclosure of infection rates? Well, we hope that the... Uh the reports that these people issue are going to be truthful. We've done a lot of digging. We've found a lot of, uh, you know, yes, they're correct in some instances, and, and no, they're not in the others. Um, our equipment, simply put, is the most effective, the only way to assure that you are reaching all three-dimensional areas within a hospital room. To put it short, we are going to be in uh, the new standard of care that uh, everybody is going to be judging what the standard of care is. It should be Zymac. So we, we, we hope to have a tremendous impact on that. And we know that when the news comes out and they, they are giving all the reports of what is really there, it's going to be quite alarming, quite alarming to the general public. I want to go back for just a moment so that our listeners understand. CDC has a list of 28 infectious diseases commonly found in hospitals. Which are hospitals most concerned about? Uh, they're concerned about MRSA. They're concerned about Hep C. They're concerned about, you know, a lot of them. Uh, they're, they're really concerned about all of them. Uh, it's a situation, what do we do? Do we target one virus and let the others go? Um, it's a serious situation. MRSA is, is probably one of the worst, mm-hmm. one of the worst they're concerned about. You know, one of the things that you hear a lot about in the news is this fear of avian flu and and pandemic. And one of the things that I did is I participated in a panel that discussed avian flu, and it was my job to talk about chemicals. And, you know, the the sad thing is I saw your machine a day after. Uh, I, I participated in this panel, and they had all these experts and all these knowledgeable people, everyone throwing up their hands. You know, how are you going to effectively do this? And, uh, you know, it would seem that you're probably gathering a lot of attention in terms of, you know, being able to treat three-dimensional uh, surfaces, are you not? Yes, we are. Um, this is a very, very serious question because our system, if, if it broke out in a school, and let's say... Joey had uh, symptoms of the of this virus. None of the other children got it. How would you let any of the other children go back to school knowing that you had treated this building without burning it down, you know, as, as best as you possibly could to eliminate that the virus within that structure? There's only one way. There's only one way. And that's to use the particles with the charge that are so small they get everywhere. Anywhere that virus could possibly hide. We're going to find it. So uh, I wish you had seen it a day earlier, too. <laughs> <laughs> well, 
Cliff, did you have anything you wanted to add before we... No, I was just going to mention it would also seem that cruise ships would be a good opportunity for this because it seems that not a week goes by and people are getting sick on you know one cruise ship for another with Norwalk or norovirus and, and so on and so forth. And uh, it would seem that this might be a market for you as well. It is. There are actually, it's, it's very staggering. Uh, we, we get hit by it daily. All of my, myself and my partners get hit by it daily. Just how wide-reaching the, the possibilities of what we need to look into. Uh, which direction do we want to take our business? Where can we do the most good? Where can we save the most lives? Uh, it's hitting us every single day, and it's very distractive uh, to, to a point. We want to make sure that we go after, you know, the areas that we can help the most people, do the most good. And, uh, you know, it's like mass gathering areas of people, you know, libraries, uh, publicly owned buildings, government owned buildings, uh, public transportation, uh, trains, buses, all of these areas. I mean, it's just amazing the um, amount of contaminants that we have found in places like that. Uh, every government agency should be looking at this. It's, it's a serious incredible piece of equipment that needs to be utilized for the protection of every man, woman, and child in this country. Um, we're very, very proud of this system, very proud of it. Uh, it's been over three years in development, um, lots of testing, and a, a whole lot of work, I'll tell you. So. <laughs> well, is there anything else? It sounded like you already kind of touched on a few things you wanted to add. Uh, anything else you'd like to add? And then finally, how can our listeners contact you? Um, well, just that it was a pleasure being on his show. Um, I would invite everybody to please, you know, check out our website and uh, listen to what we're saying because this system is for real. It's amazing. We have the testing. We've definitely done the testing. Uh, there's nothing like it in the world, and it really needs to be looked at. Can you give us that website again? Sure. It's www.zimek.com. Dot com. And is your contact information on there, or would you like to leave that as well? Uh, contact information is on the website. Uh, you can go to different branches of our company through the website. You can also call us via our 800 number, which is 800-719-4635, or you can remember it by going 800-71-ZYMEC. Okay, let's see if... Uh, if Dr. Wild's still around. They, Dieter, are you still on the phone? Yeah, I certainly am. Great. I was uh, just curious if you had any questions for David oh, before he yeah. goes. Okay. Right. I have spent my the majority of my professional life generating aerosols of all kinds. And, um, you know, submicron uh, uh, aerosols is what comes out of a diesel exhaust and what uh, comes out of a cigarette smoke. That is about one micron or less before it coagulates. Um, I kind of know how to generate those particles. How do you do that over there? Do you, do you use a heating process and um, create a fume like a fog machine? No, sir. Uh, we do not do it that way. We do not thermally decompose any of the active ingredients that are in a disinfectant solution, uh, nor, nor do we use steam or heat or any of that. Uh, well, I happen to have downstairs in my garage 
spinning disk generator, but that one wouldn't put out a heck of a lot of aerosols in such a short time. No, anyway, obviously that is, uh, uh, that br you mentioned it. Uh, what is the active ingredient? Or can't you tell us that? Um, mechanically, I can't share that with anybody. It's patented technology. Oh. It's proprietary, and it's you know been three years in development. But it's because it's patented technology, you can put a little trust in the fact that it's not a simple boiler or steamer or a spinning wheel or anything like that. This, yeah. is, this is some serious technology uh, that's well, doing some unique The things. other ones are, too. I know Dotra band uh, generators, and I happen to have a couple of those around somewhere in my house. Mm -hmm. I haven't used them in years. Um, what type of generators? Um, uh, Dotra band was a uh, researcher originally, I think, from France or, and or Belgium, lectured in uh, University of Montreal. I happen to have his book over here. And uh, that is uh, basically a, a, an aerosolizer uh, of various kinds. He used a couple of them. We use submicron and micron particles in toxicology to uh, expose um, uh, uh, mice and guinea pigs. So that's where I, I know that one from. And I know how to, um, you know, how to measure it and how to uh, uh, generate those. But not in those huge quantities where you say, you know, I have a, you know, a, a typical room, 20 by 20 by 10, and it's, 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 it's full uh, of particles within minutes. That was definitely a stumbling block for us. Yeah. Many years of <laughs> working on that because, you know, it's, there's certain things you can do to generate submicron and micron, micronic particles, uh, but not in volume. And Correct. Less, less with a charge on them, like we're doing. So you know, it's it's been a long road. Uh, well, the charge, charge, the charge. Most of the time, you can't avoid as you are generating it. You're probably inadvertently charging it, which in your case is you know a good byproduct. And yeah, thank you, and thank you, Joe. Yes, uh, one millionth of a meter is still one micrometer internationally, and not a micron, <laughs> even though. Even though I'm using it now too, <laughs> and, uh, the generic term that unfortunately rubs off yeah. on all of us. Yeah. Well, it sounds like the two of you could but have a Joe, little side but Joe conversation. To me. That's good. <laughs> oh yeah, Lee, you know that, Dieter. Dieter, I can't let you get away without spelling that name of the person that wrote that that book. How do you spell it? Um, Dotraba. Now I happen to have it. I have to jump over a couple of boxes here. I happen to have the copy right in front of me. I want to spell it correctly. Hang on one second. While you're doing that, we'll let our listeners know we're going to bring everybody back in for just a moment before we go. We still have Jim Pemberton here in the studio. Cliff, got Dr. Wow on the line, and, uh, of course, David Sparks still. That was a long second. No problem. I filled it quite, quite easily, Dieter. It is Dieter. called Studies on Aerosols. Lucien, that is the French name, L-U-C-I-E-N, Dotraband, last name, D-A-U-T-R-E-B-A-N-D-E. -E. He's a real smart guy. He's an MD and a PhD. <laughs> uh, excellent. You're a smart guy, too. Dieter, <laughs> <laughs> Dieter have, oh, In fact, it was... Believe, believe it or not, it was published in 1958. Wow. And it's still applicable today, huh? 
Well, let's. Uh, like he's from Belgium. He is from Belgium. Let's go around the table here, Jim. Anything you wanted to ask of David, or anything you'd like to add as a David? Is this product currently available to hospitals to purchase? Yes, it is. Is it available yes, it is. in Canada as well as the United States? Uh, Canada, not as of yet. Okay, I'll want to know when it is. I might have a lead for you. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay, thank you. For, from a personal note, I have a family member experiencing severe difficulties right now from nosocomial infection. This is uh, something that I'm just shocked that it's not more in the public eye of how serious this is. And most people you talk to have somebody suffering from this. Uh, what, a, what a great product to bring to the marketplace. Yeah, that's one of the thank things you. that David had personally shared with me. That was one of his motivations and inspirations for doing this because it happened in his family as well. Yeah. All too frequent. David, anything that you wanted to uh, maybe ask Jim about some of the cleaning issues that he touched on? Well, I, I, uh, I found that you're very, very knowledgeable and uh, professional on your issues. Uh, I have a chemical background as well, and I really enjoyed listening to you today. So. Well, thank you. You you covered everything. <laughs> you did a very good job. Moisture content, vacuum, all that. Yeah, you did a very good job. Cool. Great. Well, thank you both. Dieter, anything you'd like to add before we go? Yeah, no. Not, uh, I, uh, in fact, I want to take a look at the website. It is Z-I-M-E-K. M-E-K. Z-I-M-E-K. Okay, got it. Great. Okay. All right. Well, thank you. Well, hey, thank you, David, and thank you, Jim, and thank you, Dr. Dietrich Weil. also like to thank my co-host here, Cliff Slotnick. It's always a pleasure, the, John. The cyber jockey, Zach, for handling the... It's always, it's always a good time yeah, here on IAQ Radio. Oh, yeah, we, we've had a great time today. And, uh, of course, we also like to thank our growing group of loyal listeners. And uh, we we'll look forward to seeing you here again next week on IAQ Radio. This has been another IAQ Radio production. 